you know, first of all, is the place growing? Is is their economy healthy? Are they adding jobs? If they're adding jobs, they're adding money into the budget. They're adding, if property values are going up, you know, your standard credit analysis is also partly a pension analysis. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, the podcast about the $4 trillion that state and local governments spend each year, a production, of course, of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined, as always, by my co-host, Bonafide Fiscal Policy, wonk journalist, researcher, chicken connoisseur, Liz Farmer. Liz, (laughs) welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Uh, I don't have any chicken news this week, uh, other than dinner related stuff, which I don't think uh, our dinners, our readers really care to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. There were uh, several stories uh, about the, the home chicken industry, so to speak. Mm. And one of the things <laughs> I highlighted was uh, chickens for rent. You can rent chickens for some period of time. And then give them back at the, at the end of it. So for people who are like kind of trying on the idea, or if you, depending on the price of eggs, I suppose it could be cheaper. Wow. Maybe just to rent a chicken that's producing a, a couple eggs that's a week insane. for you. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're way ahead of the curve, at least as it relates to chickens in the business press. Totally. Yeah. We, we do have like two dozen eggs in our fridge right now. And we're just making eggs for the sake of making eggs, which uh, maybe we should, maybe I should be selling them. <laughs> Or rent or renting your chickens oh, to others. Yes, or, or renting my chickens. <laughs> that's right. Um, so we're talking today about about pensions, as we've a, a topic that we've covered a couple different times on the on the podcast. That we could probably talk about a lot more. You could probably have <laughs> several podcasts devoted just to questions related to state and local government pensions. But we did want to uh, revisit this topic for a couple different reasons. uh, One of them being, of course, that Liz has been doing some really great work on this recently. But uh, there's been a lot of attention on on pensions as of late because of some changes in the market, right? We have higher interest rates, more volatile uh, returns in the in the equity markets and and lots of different factors that are, are really changing maybe not changing the the policies or changing the investment strategies of public pensions, but are definitely kind of forcing us to revisit some of these questions that we have not had to really contend with over the last decade or so when interest rates have been very low and when uh, stock prices just seem to go up. That uh, didn't necessarily make it easy to manage a pension, but it was uh, kind of held constant some factors that have otherwise been uh, kind of complicating the the process of managing public pensions. And so we want to talk about that and we want to pay some special attention to the governance and oversight questions related to pensions. And to discuss that with us, we're very lucky to have Natalie Cohen, who is the president and founder of National Municipal Research and a, a real expert in the world of credit analysis and credit analysis, particularly as it relates to, to pensions. So um, with all that said, Liz, it's important, I think, just to remind our, our listeners of some of the foundational dimensions here of, of pension plans and, and how they work and why the governance of pension plans is so important. Of course, typical state and local government pension plan is, is being funded from three main sources, one being the contributions that the employees themselves make. So if you are in a plan as a public employee, you work for a city or a state uh, or whatever it might be. You have a pension plan that you are paying into. You contribute a certain amount to it. 
every paycheck. And then when you retire, you have um, either a defined benefit, if it's a if it's a plan that offers a defined benefit, meaning that you'll have, based on your years of service and and some other factors, uh, a regular amount of a fixed amount that you'll you'll be receiving in your pension or a defined contribution if you're in a defined contribution plan, which is a little bit more like a traditional 401k or the kind of private sector retirement savings plans that we see elsewhere. But either way, uh, employees themselves are contributing. So that's the first kind of leg of the stool on where pension money comes from. The second, of course, is the employer contribution. So employers are, are either matching at some level or in some cases even going above and beyond when employees contribute to their employees' retiree plans or their, their employees' retirement plans. And then the third piece, which is where it gets a little more complicated and interesting is, is the asset returns, right? So all that money that is paid into the funds from employees and employers is then invested. And the idea is that those investments will generate their own returns that will try to produce uh, some additional income, some additional cash flow into the fund that will help make uh, it a little more solvent and take down the amount that employers and employees have to pay in. Now that's in a nutshell, that's uh, where the, the pension money comes from, but there's a lot of other complicating factors and some important policy decisions surrounding where that, that money comes from. Now, as I know you've looked a lot at some of those governance kinds of questions, particularly as it relates to some of these more technical matters. When you think about the the main things that a listener becoming familiar with pension plan governance and the more technical dimensions of pension plan governance needs to know what comes to mind. Yeah, I think um, a lot of time, like one of the most important terms to know is the, the term discount rate. Uh, the reason being is that refers to how much it is assumed a pension plan will earn on its investments every year. So it's, in other words, the the investment rate of return. But discount rate is funner to say, I suppose. One of the reasons that's so important is, I mean, aside from just the obvious, um, investment, pension investments of, out of that three-legged stool that you mentioned uh, tend to make up at least half of the total pot of money in a pension fund at any given time. So that is a huge influence. You know, while those other two theoretically are fixed, the employee contributions and the government contributions, the investment returns can vary wildly from year to year. And so one of the ways that pension plans try to manage how much they think is they're going to need in the plan to, to meet all of these retirement benefits that they promised is to assume, well, if we earn like 7% a year on, on average, then you know, we'll have X amount in 10 years, X amount in 20 years. And so we'll need X contributions from government. So it's it's a constant, you know, kind of <laughs> prophesizing, I suppose. So the investment rate of return, the assumed rate of return is really huge. And I think the reason it, it really got a lot of attention following the Great Recession, when we had the financial crisis, uh, a lot of pensions that were um, really reliant on on equities um, saw a lot of money disappear in the matter of less than a year. I think California's uh, public employees plan, CalPERS, which is the largest pension plan in the world, lost around, I want to say 20% of its value over the course of a year or two. And so considering everything I just said, you know, actuaries who are assuming like the pension plan is going to have X amount in five years, 10 years, all of a sudden your amount goes down by a lot. And then you have this low interest rate environment. So the portion of funds that pension plans do have in, in bonds and more stable things like that, not the stock market, 
eh, that's not really earning a whole lot either. So like, how do you get to that 7% on average when the stock market has gone way down? Um, and it's now becoming really, it has been vo pretty volatile. I, I think that's, that's a fair assumption. Um, and investment rate and, and, and bonds are um, not returning a lot of money either. So that's the juggling that pension plan actuaries have to do. And ultimately what it has led to is people saying pension plans shouldn't assume you're going to earn 7% every year. And there's been a push and it has been happening slowly for this pension plans to lower their assumed, their assumed rate of return. One of the things that really brought that to light was when GASB, which is the governmental, oh gosh, governmental accounting standards board. Did I get that right? <laughs> I almost never <laughs> refer to it by its full name. Yes. So the GASB. Um, so it sets the rules for accounting rules. And back in like 2015, a new rule went into effect. Uh, it did a couple of things, but one of those things was to uh, ask, require pension plans that um, were low funded to assume a more realistic rate of return. And I thought when I, I was doing this data report uh, story on it with our, our data editor at Governing at the time, and I thought, oh my gosh, there's a lot of plans that are really, really underfunded. And if they have to assume they're now going to earn less, their liabilities are going to go way up. This is going to be insane. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> I think a few plans that uh, New Jersey's state plan was one. I think um, the what I the piece the place that I wrote about was in Kentucky. Like that was another one of their plans. They lowered the discount rate pretty dramatically. But that's kind of about it. And so it really showed me how um, how important this thing is and how uh, scary it can be to lower your discount rate and have your liabilities go away up because that means governments have to put more money in and. Uh, and to to our larger point of this podcast is that there's kind of nobody really there's there's guidance there's rules but nobody gets hugely punished by not explicitly following the rules. It's such a yeah such an important set of points you make there, Liz, and we really can't overstate just how important these otherwise kind of very technical decisions about things like discount rates ultimately become. You know, in in, in Illinois. Uh, we we talk a lot about pensions because uh, Illinois and, and the city of Chicago are are both held up as examples of pension obligations that have maybe mm -hmm. not been dealt with appropriately over time, in part because of uh, not making required contributions on the part of of the uh, state and and sometimes on the part of employees, but also some of those investment returns issues that you had mentioned. I mean, at the moment, the state of Illinois. Unfunded pension liability is somewhere in the neighborhood of about $140 billion, and the city of Chicago's is around $34 billion. And the challenge with that, if them, those are startling numbers, certainly makes you gives you some pause. And at the same time, critics will point out that those are projections over 30, 40, 50 years, subject to all kinds of assumptions. And tweaking those assumptions even just a little bit, particularly something like the discount rate, can give you a very, very different number. Not not a number such that the problem goes away per se, but a problem, a, a, a set of numbers such where suddenly it looks like maybe a more tractable problem or something that you could do. And there's been some some proposals around here and in a few other states that have had pension concerns around doing things like more aggressively funding pensions now, putting more dollars into those funds 
that then allows them to generate more investment returns and drag down that liability even more. And those are all those are all fair strategies, but it's all again predicated on the idea that these are 30, 40, 50 year arcs that these mm-hmm. that these liabilities follow. And so it's a it's such a, a such a challenge. And again, it really just drives home that whomever is making decisions about what that discount rate is, how to value the the investments in the pension funds, who gets to serve on the oversight body in the first place. Those are all really, really important policy questions that have a huge impact on the balance sheets of state and local governments. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, one of the real luminaries in the world of municipal credit analysis, Natalie Cohen, president and founder of National Municipal Research, Inc., and the author of a great blog and newsletter called The Public Purse. Really pleased to have you with us here, Natalie. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. So we've talked about pensions on the Public Money Pod before, but I think it's worth just reminding our listeners uh, at a high level when we talk about state and local government pensions, uh, how many are we talking about? What kind of assets? What are some of the you know, key kind of high level considerations just to set the stage a little bit before we get into some of the specific uh, accountability and oversight and other kinds of issues that we want to explore with you here today? Yeah, so some people might be surprised, but there are 5,300 systems in the country. Most are at the local level. Um, 300 are at the state level. So the various plans that the states run um, also include local memberships. Pennsylvania stands out, got about 1,500 individual plans at the local level. And then Illinois is the other one that stands out. It's got 648. So it's a widespread, diffused uh, set of systems. There were 34 million uh, members of pension plans, state and local. I would say 15 million roughly are active. So those are employed, but members of the plan, so they're not retired yet. And then about 12 million beneficiaries that are actually receiving benefits. So that's kind of the scope. And if anyone's doing the math, the rest were considered inactive, which means that they're, they've moved to somewhere else, but they're still eligible once they hit the retirement age. Just very high treetops. Total assets were $4.5 trillion as of September 2022, um, down from a peak of $5.3 trillion in December 22. So there was a significant drop over the year. Uh, and these are these are the top hundred plans, and the census actually reports quarterly. For those of you that want to dig a little deeper in some of that, corporate equity is the biggest chunk, and that's down from two point two trillion to one point six trillion, about a uh, significant drop, and that makes up about forty seven percent of all the assets. The Census Bureau does a quarterly review, so these are unadjusted; these are nominal figures. But in December twenty twenty there were $520 billion in uh, private equity, and that's now risen to $756 billion in private equity. So that's a pretty big jump. That is the one area of investment that did not go down. 
that's risen uh, modestly, but it has risen in the face of the, the losses in the other areas. You know, we could talk about that later. And then just very briefly, there are three components to, to this these numbers, the employer contributions, the employee contributions, and then, of course, the earnings on uh, the assets and the savings. So that's what makes up the annual um, pool for the employees. Yeah, I know we we so we we've, we've got this kind of laid out bullet pointed thing here, but I'm assuming it's okay if we just kind of jump off from from where uh, Natalie's comments. I know we, we do want to get into to policing a little bit, but um, since you brought it up, and in case I forget to ask you later, the the difference between public equities and private equity. Do you know why and the private equity didn't go down this year? Well, I mean, this is a theory to be researched, but I think the asset valuations tend to be a little bit slower. And maybe, you know, I've talked with private equity folks and they assert very adamantly that the the valuations are accurate and current and all that. But there may be Mm. some out there that are not. Um, but private equity has, you know, has done well. So that's the, those are uh, that's a bucket for a number of different subtopics. Uh, hedge funds are in that, uh, and those bounce around in terms of valuations. Private equity would be, you know, companies that are doing things directly and not going to the public capital markets to borrow. And then you've got real estate in there as well and and alternatives, you know, so there may be some kind of unusual types of uh, capital raise that are not, you know, necessarily in the public capital markets. And. I know from that pensions have been increasingly shifting money into private equity, that big bucket of alternative investments. And it has brought on criticism or praise, depending on who you are. But I think that's one big area that's been a little bit of a controversy in the in the pension land. Um, Maybe you can talk about just who makes those decisions, who's in charge and who's watching over that, I guess. Again, you, this is a really good point and does touch on this policing issue that you've you've brought up very well and, and done some deep dives on with uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. The oversight does vary. It's usually, if it's on the state level, it's usually the state treasurer um, that will be in charge of the state's pensions, but the pension plan itself has a board of trustees and the who gets appointed to the board varies from state to state. Most would be hiring outside valuators, an independent valuator, which is the appropriate thing to do. I did notice when I was watching Detroit carefully as they were heading downward in many ways that their board had uh, the ability to value. <laughs> so those valuations not very clear and, uh, you know, overseen by an outside independent. Uh, and so they could just determine the valuations. And that was a big issue in the Detroit bankruptcy. So, Natalie, I wanted to ask about states meddling or overseeing uh, local pension funds, depending on, on how you look at it. They have the authority to do that and even pass laws that kind of nudge localities into responsible funding. but there's no one doing that for the states, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier the SEC, but that's more of a fraud enforcement situation rather than a responsible funding situation, right? 
Well, uh, in terms of oversight of states, I mean, there's certainly been a number of congressional bills over the last number of years. You know, there was a lot of table pounding around funding levels. And so there was a bill that came up that if if a state plan or any plan, public plan, was not well-funded, that government may lose its tax-exempt ability. And that obviously created an uproar. But, you know, there are a number of members of the U.S. Congress at the federal level that are have pushed to have greater oversight of state pensions. But, you know, we have a lot of... My favorite is the the Rudyard Kipling uh, animal called the push me, pull you. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that, but at the same time as we're looking at, you know, having greater oversight of the states, there's an enormous move to push things to the states, uh, particularly the Supreme Court decisions are saying, well, that's a state matter, that's a state matter, you know, on, on other issues. Uh, and we've gone back a lot more away from the federal government and into, you know, giving the states authority. So states, states handle the state pensions and they also handle insurance. That's typically a state run program, but those, those are heavily regulated industries. So who oversees the states? I guess, you know, we would have to go to Congress for that. Yeah, that has, uh, you reminded me, that stuff does, it seems to come up every year, sometimes loudly, sometimes quietly, but uh, there's always somebody in Congress who wants to, wants to tell states what to do with their pensions. <laughs> right. Yeah, just to follow up on the, on the movement into private equity, Natalie, I know that you know, one of the big criticisms that has followed that is the higher fees and uh, yes. the perceived sometimes lack of transparency around uh, more public money going into private equity. And yet that doesn't seem to be as big a concern if uh, pension fund managers continue to allocate assets in that in that direction. Is there something in that in that world that has changed or is it just the need to continue to pursue returns pushes dollars in that direction? Well, there has been uh, a focus on fees for sure. And I know, I mean, that was, if you followed CalPERS, which is the largest maybe anywhere in the world, they were sort of criticized for the high fees that they were paying and also chose at a number of years ago to divest of their hedge funds. So that was criticized as well. And so that's one example. Um, Indiana is considering uh, a bill that constrains pensions, but also other entities that are state-controlled, uh, like universities and so on, from considering ESG, environmental, social, or governance issues. And so there is a bill that's been kicking around, but there was an analysis that they would be losing uh, about $6.7 billion over 10 years. So that raised the eyes, you know, the whole idea of those bills that have taken place in other states is that only financial considerations be taken into account, not social, not uh, climate change issues and so on. But there have been at least that analysis and one other that I've seen uh, that Wharton has put out that shows that money would be lost if those things weren't considered. Anyhow, 
the Indiana bill wrote the language in such a way that it excluded private equity. And so that was not good because that would have forced them to divest. They've gone back and done an amendment. The bill has not yet passed, but they had to amend. You know, it's, it's, it gets very intricate when you start looking at, you know, you want to make an across the board change, but you really have to write it so that it doesn't prevent you from doing things you want to be doing. Yeah, pension. So pension investment boards, um, they seem, at least in my reporting, to like really vary in terms of skill, uh, composition, all of that stuff. So, and these investment boards are, I guess, as as the title sort of proclaims, involved in making pension investment decisions. So, can you talk a little bit about that as as a governing entity, and and does it vary as much as it seems to me, or is there some sort of overarching uh, rule there? Yeah, no, it does vary. Um, I think the guide rails that you might be talking about are, you know, there's the SEC, which does have the ability to investigate and fine for fraud reasons or corrupt reasons. And they did do that with the state of New Jersey and, and Illinois. Otherwise, you know, the board itself, obviously performance is a guide rail. I mean, if the performance has gone down, you know, there's certainly, there has been uh, a fair amount of turnover in CalPERS. And then uh, you want to be sure that, you know, who's doing the valuation is independent. So a board that is, has its hands in the evaluation process, that's not really kosher to, to do. I think appropriately drew attention, especially for the local pension plans, attention to the oversight that a lot of states have and may not necessarily include the board of trustees of the plan, but it does include oversight of how the local government is budgeting in a lot of states. So you have budget oversight from a number of states in the country that, you know, will not specifically check pensions, but they'll look to make sure that the local government is budgeting for payments. Um, so, and those tend to be the ones that are well-funded. In New Jersey, for example, because they have strong, you know, oversight of the local governments, their pensions tended to be better than the state plans. So it does cut every which way. A Wisconsin or a Utah, which has best practices all the way around, and they're doing okay. And Michigan does require that, you know, the, the actuarial amounts are put into the plans. And that's kind of what got Detroit into trouble. The police department sued, and then Detroit did a circuitous type of bond issue. So it, it does. This is our state federal system that we have, and the states and local governments do a lot of it with limited oversight. No doubt. I wanted to pick up on something you just mentioned there, Natalie, which I think is an important, it seems like, at least from the outside looking in, recent development in the space, which is a little bit of a shift in emphasis away from planned funding levels and more toward budget impacts or having thinking about pension contributions and the health of a pension relative to the amount that it will take out of the annual budget, the appropriation that it'll require every year. Is that a thing, as the kids say, or is it, is it just seem like <laughs> that's uh, something that's happened? And, and if that is the case, then does that maybe at a high level change the way that we think about uh, the fiscal health of, of pensions overall? It's a bit of a thing. I mean, it's a thing that's been around in, in some corners because 
a, a number of analysts uh, said, you know, it's more than funding levels. We got to look at, you know, first of all, is the place growing? Is, is their economy healthy? Are they adding jobs? If they're adding jobs, they're adding money into the budget. They're adding if property values are going up. You know, your standard credit analysis is also partly a pension analysis. And then... Uh, Justin, as you point out, the the percent of the budget that this makes up, you know, how much there's a lot of uh, focus now on how much is Social Security and, and Medicare making up of the federal uh, federal debt, per se. So it, I think that really is the better approach to combine. So I'd, I would say that the rating agencies and independent analysts at the large investment banks are combining outstanding debt with the pension underfunding and looking at that as a percent of the burden on the budget. I want to pick up a little bit on the, the point that you made about fiscal health really being um, at some level about the, the health of the underlying economy of a, of a jurisdiction. And I'm wondering if if, in a, if in a, we're thinking differently about that in a post-COVID world where population is dispersed all over regions and the tax collections of downtown business districts are are down and we have to kind of rethink uh, the, that relationship between economic development and, and fiscal health. Is that um, a fundamental shift, do you think, with respect to pensions or does it, given the particularly given that many of these are statewide or at least regional sorts of pensions, that, that that impact is kind of diffused when you think about it relative to pensions? Um, I mean, I think it's important to think about. I think there are, you know, certain analysts that are thinking about it and certain folks that are focused on that. Um, there's been some really good work done recently by William Fry, if you follow demography, on migration during COVID. So you probably know anecdotally that a lot of people left the inner cities and moved to less dense areas to get away from the density of, of COVID in the major metropolitan areas. And uh, so some areas are happily experiencing growth, and that's good for their pension plans because property values went up in those places. Uh, so distance is really, in my mind, you know, we've gone from death of distance when we started having fiber optic all over that made it very inexpensive, low friction to transmit information with uh, electronics uh, to the the death of place in some respects, that that's kind of a new trend that we're not quite used to yet and we're going to have to get used to it. So the dots connect to pensions in the sense of job losses, higher unemployment in some areas, loss of, uh, loss of the valuation of property and so on, which also tie into the pension um, cash flows, what they have. Smaller metros grew and uh, non-metro or more rural areas showed the greatest growth in the U.S. And this is internal domestic growth. Immigration doesn't really exist at this point, and part of that's from COVID. So again, you did not, so you had fewer employees really paying into the state and local coffers. Yeah, no, to, to, to spin off on the, the employees comment, so Yes, fewer employees, more retirements, as we've seen as of you know the last couple of years, mean fewer p employees paying into a pension at any given time. 
so local governments are hiring, but they need to raise salaries and that then raises what a pension would be, right? Or pension for that employee or pension contribution for that employee. Is that something that, that you're seeing too as well? Or has there been enough pension reform that new employees don't really have a pension? You know, there's been so much discussion about in the economic circles, whether the Phillips curve is dead, because typically when there's, it's tough to hire people, if you pay them more, you'll, you'll be able to attract more people. And so, yes, I think, you know, some governments are paying more to, to attract and keep people. Um, but, you know, I don't think that's a major factor in, in what's happening on the pension front. Of course, a lot of the pension contributions from the employees are set as a percentage. So if the salary goes up, they're going to be putting in more. Um, you know, this, mm-hmm. is, this is the issue with inflation that uh, <laughs> everything is chasing everything else, you know, and, and going higher. Um but I know there are places that have, you know, many places have added new tiers. They've just stopped the, you know, their uh, existing employees. And then any new employee hired goes into a new tier of a pension plan. And that tier typically is going to be less rich than the older historical ones. Um, then there are others. I know I was kind of hair on fire when Detroit offered retroactive benefits to their retirees, because by definition, a retroactive benefit is never pre-funded. You know, you just, you know, you say, hey, you guys, you're already retired and uh, we're going to give you more money because they were saying it was unfair that the older employees had a lower benefit than later ones. So it worked in the other direction in in the case of Detroit. Natalie, we've gone from... um an environment of very low interest rates and relatively tame volatility, particularly in the equity market. And it seemed like nothing but up growth in the equity market for uh, the last, gosh, decade plus. And we're now moving into uh, an era of maybe more normalized interest rates or interest rates closer to 20, 30 year trends and maybe not nearly as much growth and a lot more volatility in the equity market. So that's uh, kind of a flipping of where things have been as of late. When you think about, if you look out, say, for the rest of 2023, thinking about what all that means for for pensions, uh, what sorts of policy or investment allocation or other sorts of changes do you think we can expect to observe? There's going to be a settling out of the interest rates, hopefully over the next two years, there's a lot of discussion around whether we're going to have a soft landing or a hard landing. Some folks are anticipating a recession. Good reports come out saying, you know, we're doing great. There's more employment. Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of head scratching going on in the economics uh, profession at the moment. You know, it's uh, we're not going to reach sort of a steady state for a long time. We had a zero bound, which inflates assets. They work in opposite directions. And so it's going to take some time. Property tends to be sticky. But, you know, corporate equity, obviously, you know, some parts of the equity markets have done very well. You know, you think about energy uh, and what's happened following the Ukraine invasion by Russia. Um, They were the breadbasket. So agriculture is also an area that has done well in terms of being able to supply regions from the U.S. Got conflicts with China that 
affect some rare minerals that go into a lot of electronics. So all of that's going to affect the assets in the pensions. Some places, local governments have raised uh, taxes to make a difference. Kansas has a very interesting uh, issue that they're looking at. They haven't actually passed it yet. They had issued pension obligation bonds a number of years ago, 500 billion of them. And now they would like to take out some of those with what's called a tender. So they want to use a portion of their upcoming budget to do that. Uh, The issue with pension obligation bonds is that you need to continue earning. And if, if all of a sudden your earnings are lower than what you're paying out in the pension debt service, the bond debt service, that's not a good mix. So that's going to drain your your asset. And, you know, in the past, it, when we were in a low interest rate and the equity markets were doing well and asset values were high, um, that didn't matter so much, but it matters a lot more now. And so, um, an investor might be willing to tender their their holding because they can now reinvest it at a higher rate than what they were getting on the POB. So that that part that aspect is not a worry. Um, but whether they can get it through their legislature when they pass the budget is another thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sort of in my mind equating it to like standing at the craps table and instead of borrowing the person's money next to you because you have to pay it back and you're gambling with it. Uh, just pay it back now and use your own money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so a lot of equity investing is a bit of gambling um, because you can't perfectly predict the future. You don't know where the role is going to land. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, that's really, you know, triggered off of funding levels. I, I, you know, one of the other things we haven't talked about and, you know, GASB, and you've pointed out, GASB has changed the rules over the last number of years that if a pension plan determines that they're going to be insolvent at a certain point in the future, they can't use just the discount rate that they use to, you know, assess their earnings on their plan. They have to do a blended rate, which would go to the municipal market rate is what Gatsby chose. And so there are a number of governments that are at a blended rate. The, uh, Rating agencies, I think it was Moody's that was one of the first to try to standardize the discount rates, and they did it at a lower level and used the corporate rate. I know some, again, the Stanford folks, CEPR, were looking at the risk-free rate, and that was, you know, considered the treasury rate at that point. I don't know if everyone would call it completely risk-free at this point, following the downgrade of the U.S. government. But the risk-free rate is also a short-term rate. And so they've kind of softened their tone at at the at CEPR and said, well, you know, yes, this is a long-term uh, investment. And so you could probably go out on the curve and use a longer, longer-term measurement. Um, 
almost uh, there's there are no pension plans that are using a risk-free rate at this point in their analyses uh but there are some that are doing the what if scenarios of saying what if rates were x higher and what if rates were x point lower so they're doing that so moody's did standardize i think most of the rating agencies standardized the way that they were looking at all these different variables s p has gotten criticism because they've taken ESG factors into account in both the um, governments themselves, but in particular, the bond sales, and, and that goes to investing in pensions as well. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Natalie Cohen, for taking the time to join us here today to talk about pensions and policing pensions and some important trends on the markets and all sorts of other very, very salient information for our listeners. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Appreciate being invited. Thanks again to Natalie for joining us. And I could talk pensions all day, as could she, I am sure, and you, Justin. Um, but I want to get into sort of the the background for for that conversation or the impetus for for why we focus so much on on who polices pensions and 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 management. And this week's ripped from the headlines segment is a little self-serving because it's about two stories that I wrote. One is uh, for Route 50. It was one of my recent public finance update newsletters on how it's called how a bankrupt cities uh, how a bankrupt city's pension system hit a breaking point. And I wrote a spinoff on that called Who Polices Pensions for one of my long story short newsletters as well. And both of those newsletters talk about Chester, Pennsylvania, the city that I that filed for bankruptcy back in November that I've been been following with with a lot of interest. And Chester's pension situation in many ways is is like a lot of other cities, a lot of other distressed cities. It uh, is severely underfunded. And and in particular, it's police pension, which makes up the bulk of of all of its its uh, pension liabilities. It's police police pension is in really bad shape. And that's the focus of my writing. And uh, Chester also raised pension benefits and then didn't fund them. Again, super duper common. But its situation in terms of how much does the city actually owe its pension fund and retirees, that part is unusual. And the reason is because back in 2009, during the recession, Pennsylvania, and at this time, Chester's police pension fund was probably like half funded um, or maybe around 60%. Pennsylvania passed emergency like pension relief legislation to help out some of these distressed localities that, that basically said they could defer their pension payments um, and still count them towards towards their assets. With these, so like for example, um, you can say you made your full payment, but actually you're making it in like three chunks over the next year, kind of thing. Well, Chester is one of the cities that did that. Um, however, it never actually made up its pension its owed pension payment and then continued to not make its full payments every single year. So it created this gap between a growing gap between what the city actually paid and what it said it had paid. So it's getting credit for money it hasn't actually put in there yet. On paper, Chester's pension fund back in 2018 looked like it was about 30% funded, which isn't great. But in reality, 
looking at the actual cash on hand in the pension fund, it was more like 9% funded. And it has, it continued to decline from there. When the city receiver came in uh, in 2020, they looked at this again. In 2021, the police pension fund had about a million and a half dollars in it. So it was basically pay as you go. It was 3% funded. Moreover, Pennsylvania has a law, as we, as we refer to, that behooves uh, localities to make their full pension payments. There's, it's like a, a carrot and a stick situation. So on the one hand, it gives cities aid every year towards their pensions. The stick is if cities don't make their pension payments, they don't get that aid and they get fines and fees. And so this has generally worked pretty well, but Chester has been racking up the fines and fees because it hasn't been making its full payments. And so between its back payments and its fines and fees, it owes about $34 million to its police pension fund just to get, just to get current. The oversight issue is Pennsylvania knew about this, but they never actually took away that that fiscal aid because let's face it, if it if it had, the police pension fund would be even in even worse shape than it is. So this was an issue that the state knew about uh, for several years and and didn't enforce its own uh, enforcement mechanism. That's the issue with with Chester. and and I'm told that this sort of thing with the counting money it hasn't actually paid yet is extremely unusual. And in fact, no one I've, I've spoken to has has come across a similar case like this. It is an unusual case. And I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it to say nothing for being glad to have the chance to highlight uh, some of your great work in this space. <laughs> um, it seems like the takeaway here is that you can have all of the mechanisms, the, the legislative and other sorts of oversight mechanisms at the state level, but you have to have engaged policymakers, both at the state and local level, willing to do the work that, that follows providing a, that, that kind of active pension governance. And Pennsylvania is one of, this, one of the few states that has a, a pretty aggressive state uh, intervention, right? Yeah. If, if there's a fiscally distressed local government, um, the state can come in and get very involved, much like the, the law in Michigan and a few other states. So this is, it's not as though state government in Pennsylvania is is unfamiliar with what it means to get involved very directly and very immediately with local government finances. But it's, it ultimately comes down to, and I don't necessarily say this critically, it just it comes down to the, the people more than it does the institutions or the mechanisms. And it's interesting to think about what that means for pension reform or trying to strengthen the oversight because you can have all the structures in the world, but if you don't have the right folks involved in those processes, you may not get your desired results. That's so true. Reminds me of what one of our guests, LaShawn Ross, said about how things that can present as a process problem or, or any other kind of problem, it's really just about the people. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.